We'll be turning in your Hebrew hymnal to hymn numbered 115, otherwise known as Psalm 115, the Hebrew hymnal, because that's really what the book of Psalms are. They are to be sung, uh, and these particular Psalms that we are in the midst of right now, 113 through 117, are called the Hillel Psalms. Hillel meaning praise. Uh, we are familiar with the word Hillel, hallelujah, praise be to Yahweh, or hallelujah, praise be to God. And Psalm 113 through 117 were special psalms that were sung during the Jewish Passover. And so they have special meaning uh, to, the, to the Jewish community, and they have messianic meaning to believers in Christ. And so they are wonderful, wonderful psalms. And so tonight we're going to be looking at a psalm that focuses in on the one true God. And so I want us to read Psalm 115. I'm going to read all 18 verses. And um, as I, I read these verses, I want you to look for the natural breaks in the psalm. Verse 1, starting with verse 1. I'm reading from the some have asked me, I'm reading from the ESV. Uh, I understand that that's what uh, Brother Wade used the last part of his ministry here. I figured probably you were accustomed to that. And so I'm, I'm reading from the ESV. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is, your, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give increase you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. 
The heavens are the Lord's heavens. But the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Hallelujah. <laughs> praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. If you notice the Psalms in the Hallel Psalms, 113 through 117, they almost unanimously end with that hallelujah, our praise to the Lord. This psalm is a psalm that assumes the existence of God. It is amazing that the Bible is not a textbook seeking to prove God's existence, but rather it assumes in the opening verse of the Word of God, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God assumes the existence of God. So the, the Scripture writers are not setting out to prove the existence of God. They, they are moving from the assumption that God does exist. And that opening verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God lays to rest a lot that should be wasms. It lays to rest atheism. In the beginning, God. It lays to rest materialism. In the beginning, God created. Therefore, the doctrine of uniformitarianism that matter has always existed is not true. Eternal. In the beginning, God created, lays to rest the, the whole notion of humanism. God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I want to give you a quote from A.W. Tozer. I've, over the years, have learned to appreciate Tozer. He has written a book entitled The Knowledge of the Holy. And in that chapter on the doctrine of God, he makes this quote, The most important thing about us is what we think about God. Now let me say that again. The most important thing about you and me, let me personalize it, the most important thing about you is what you think about God. And then he follows it up with this. Because we do not worship the God who is. We worship the God we think He is. And if what we think about is wrong, our worship will also be wrong. And then he makes this statement. The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of wrong thoughts. Now, let me say that one more time. The essence of is the entertainment of wrong thoughts about God. 
you and I know that everyone who confesses to believe in God do not believe in the true God. Everyone who says they believe in God, do they believe in the God of the Bible, the God who in Genesis 1-1 said in the beginning God, or do they believe in some aberration or some false God? Now, Psalm 115 is a defense of the one true God. You'll remember that when Moses was given the Ten Commandments, at the very top of the list, thou shalt have no gods before me. Before me, meaning in the sense of rank, and also just in the sense of, of having, uh, having uh, uh, a, God, a false god in front of you to bow down to or whatever. You'll have no other gods before me. You see, let me just say this, and I know it's not politically correct, but the God of Islam is not the God of the Bible. The God of the cults is not the God of the Bible. I don't mean that in a denigrating way. I don't mean that to be ugly to, to good people. But I'm just saying that it's not enough to say you believe in God. Remember what idolatry is. The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of God. Because we don't worship the God who is. We worship the God we think he is. And I hear people tritely saying, well, preacher, don't give me that theology. <laughs> you know what theology is? It's thinking correctly about God. Hey, I want you to give me theology. I want to know what does the Bible say about God. I want my thoughts to line up with revelation. I want my theology to, to drive my, my practice. All right? So um, the historical setting for this psalm is uh, unsure. Uh, sometimes we, we know what the setting is, but, but verse 2 gives us a little hint into the context that this psalm was written in. We don't even know who wrote it. But in verse 2 it says, Why should the nation say, Where is thy God? Obviously this psalm was written at a time when the surrounding nations, non-Israeli, non-Hebrew, when the pagan nations were looking at the nation of Israel and saying, ha, Where's your God? Where's your God? You claim to believe the one where is he? But, but there's a good place in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 where that would fit in perfectly. Now, I'm not sure that this is the context, but uh, this is possibly the background. If it's not the background, it was a background like this. Let, let me just read to you a few verses from 2 Chronicles chapter 20, and I'm going to begin in verse 1. It says, uh, after this, the Moabites... And the Ammonites, that's the unbelieving nations surrounding Israel, and with them some of the Minuites came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Jehoshaphat. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazanzor Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaim the fast throughout all of Judah. 
And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord from all the cities of Judah. They came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And he goes on to say, coming down to that last verse, I love verse 12. This is a great verse to memorize. Jehoshaphat said in his prayer, Lord, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Isn't that a great verse? We do not know what to do, but we're looking to you to show us what to do. Now that kind of that Psalm 115 was written in. I, I'm not sure that's the exact context, but it was that kind of thing that was going on at the time. Now, I, I, I see in this, uh, in your outline, I hope you'll notice, that the psalm is divided uh, pretty easily into five sections. Uh, first of all, the very first verse stands all alone, and it's a declaration of God's glory. And then verse 2 is a defense of, of God's greatness. They're raising the question, where is your God? And so the writer of Psalm 115 says, I'll tell you where our God is. So he defends God's greatness. Uh, verses 4 through 8 is what I call a denunciation of God's foes. He talks about the false gods and he describes them. And uh, we'll see that in just a moment. And then verses 9 through 15, there is, what, uh, uh, there is a dependency upon God's grace. And in that he talks about uh, a cause and effect kind of thing that's at work. If we do certain things, God does certain things. There's a cause and effect. And then the last uh, three verses is a doxology of God's supreme, uh, a, a doxology of God's supremacy. So let, let's just look at that for just a little bit. First of all, let's, let's explore the declaration of God's glory. Look again at verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but for thy sake and for your glory. The word glory is an interesting word in the Bible. It has as its root meaning heaviness or weightiness. Uh, the idea is, uh, is that when we give glory to God, we give to Him the weight that He rightfully deserves. You know, the old beatnik culture, there's a few of you in this room that are as old as I am, are close to it, and you can remember the beatnik culture, and, and they had a saying, that's heavy. Man. Remember that? Oh boy, that's heavy. Uh, when something would happen, something good, they'd say, that's heavy, man. That's this word. It's the word glory. And, and when he says, not to us, O Lord, but to your name give glory, in other words, he's saying, we want your name to be weighty. We want your name to be heavy. We want your name to receive the worth that it deserves. And, and, and he's, he's casting glory away from himself onto God. Now, I'm not a Rick Warren fan, but when the Purpose Driven Life first came out, how many of you have read that, Purpose Driven Life? Yeah. Uh, I'm, uh, Rick's uh, has some great things. Uh, I haven't been a, a Warren disciple, but I've appreciated some things he said. But I love the opening line of that book. You know what it is? It's not all about 
you. That's a great line. The purpose-driven life. He's saying, hey, the purpose-driven life is not about you. The purpose-driven life is about God. My middle son, <laughs> he, he told me something one day. I got the biggest kick out of it because I know some folks just like this. He said, Pop, and get, get, call the name of the guy he works with. He said, you know when he goes to church and they sing How Great Thou Art, he thinks they're the exact opposite spirit. The world's two greatest Christians and how he led the other one to the Lord. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the antidote to that kind of spirit. It's not about us, Lord. It's about you. It's about your glory. Uh, it's, it's being deocentric, not anthrocentric or anthropocentric. Uh, some of you science majors will remember that in 100 AD Ptolemy said as he looked out upon the earth and he philosophized he said quote the earth is still the earth is stationary and everything in the galaxy is revolving around the earth end of quote. That's a 100 AD quote by Ptolemy. 1,400 years later, a Polish astronomer named Copernicus made this revolutionary discovery. It was totally opposite from Ptolemy's conclusion. 180 degrees opposite. The sun is stationary, and we are revolving around the sun. My dear friend, I want to say to you that our lives as God's children are to revolve around the S-O-N. Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Seek ye when? First. In other words, our lives are to be centered in God. Everything in our life should revolve around our relationship with the Son. We are to live our lives in submission to Him. Everything is to glorify Him. Now why? He gives two reasons in that first verse. Look, look again at that very first verse. He says, uh, not of us, Lord, not of us, but to your name give glory. And then he says, for thy sake, for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For your, number one, because of his steadfast love or grace. That's a synonym. Because of his grace, his loving kindness, whatever your translation may render that. Uh, loving kindness uh, and grace are, are, are synonyms here. And because of his truth. He, he's saying that everything should revolve around God because God is a gracious God and God is a God of truth. Everything else may be changing and we're living in a world where it seems that that's the truth, doesn't it? Everything seems to be changing, but God's truth is stationary. Right is always right. Wrong is wrong. The scripture says the grass withers, the flower fades, but his words abide forever. So the, the beginning here, he's just declaring God's glory. Not to us, but to God be the glory. I love what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. He asked those Corinthians, and they were struggling with this whole notion of lordship. They were pretty self-centered. <laughs> they, uh, 
you know, they were involved in a lot of stuff. Paul had to reprimand them for being babes in Christ, for being saved a long time but still feeding on the milk of the Word. He had to, he had to reprimand them for, for taking one another to before the court and the law. He just reprimanded them for immorality in a stepson uh, and a stepmother, all of that stuff. They, they, they were getting drunk at the Lord's table, all this stuff. And in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, he asked one question. He says, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? He bought you. He paid for you. And then he says, therefore, what's the next word, church? Therefore, glorify God in your body, which is his. So our, whole, our, our, our lives are to be deocentric. They're to be focused on the Lord. That's why Paul said in Colossians 3, set your affections on things above. That's Colossians 3, 1. Not on things on the earth, for we are dead and our life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then we shall appear with Him in glory. All right, so there's the declaration of God's glory. Y'all are not listening fast enough. I need to go on to the second Number two, there is the defense of God's greatness. The defense of God's greatness. Notice what verse, what it says here, verse two and three. Why should the nation say, where is their God? We'll stop right there, verse two. Why should the nation say, where is your God? So first of all, under that point, notice the assault. They are assaulting the greatness of God. They're looking at the covenant people of God, the Hebrews, and they are saying, we look at you, we don't see much evidence that you have a God. We look at you, you make all these claims about serving the one only true God, we don't see much evidence of it. Where is your God? Now, what was it that the prophets throughout the Old Testament had to continually confront in Israel? I mentioned it Sunday. Idolatry. And, and so these pagan nations were looking at the Hebrews and they're saying, where, where is your God? Hey, let me ask you this. Are people asking that today to the church? Why, of course they are. The number one question unbelievers have in our culture, why is there suffering? If your God is a good God, why did my son die? If your God is a good God, why did 9-11 happen? They're asking it. Where is your God? You Christians say you believe in the one true God. Where is he? Where was he when you got a divorce? Where was he when your son or daughter rebelled? The world is still asking those same questions. Now, they're assaulting him. Uh, 
Why? If, if, if your God is so great, why are we able to come in here and capture you? Uh, then he gives an answer. Verse 3. This is the defense of God's greatness. You see verse 3? He said, I'll tell you where our God is. He's where he's always been. He's in heaven. He's enthroned in heaven, and he will do what he pleases, when he pleases, with whom he pleases, and he doesn't have to work through committee. Now, that last part was Vincent's paraphrase. <laughs> Isn't that what he's saying? Look at verse 3. Man, this is a great verse. Listen, he's our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He said, you want to know where our God is? He's where he's always been. He's in the heavens. <laughs> uh, that's one of the greatest verses in the Bible presenting God's sovereignty. He, he's, he, he's saying he, he, he's, uh, he doesn't need us, but we desperately need him. You know, I started off as a young, I'm so thankful God is patient with young preachers, aren't you? I mean, hadn't y'all put up with some bad sermons? You know, we, I, I'm so thankful the church is patient with young preachers. Somebody said a young preacher is like a wasp. He's bigger right after he's hatched than any other time in his life. And, and I remember I, I got a hold of a little aberrant theology when I was a, right, out of the, right out of the gate. I was listening to this preacher, and it sounded good. I thought, boy, he must know what he's talking about. He was talking about how, how needy God was. That, that God had a need in his heart for me. And, and if, I didn't, if I didn't give my heart to Jesus, God was going to weep in heaven because I kept God from fulfilling his purpose. I bought into that until... I started studying the Bible. Folks, God doesn't need Tommy Vincent. I desperately need him. Amen. Amen. I desperately need God. And he said, God is right where he was. Uh, where was God on 9-11? He was on his throne. If you've read the Old Testament even casually, you know that God often uses the ungodly to punish his people. Now, I can't flesh all that out. I'm not smart enough. I'm not God. But listen, God never panics. But God calls his people to repentance. There's a book entitled The Harbinger by Jonathan Kahn. Any of you in here read that? Okay. Uh, Kahn is like almost every writer. You don't agree with everything he says, but he challenges you to think. And one of the things he says in that book is that he catalogs what happened right after 9-11. And he talks about a meeting that they had where they came together in New York to, to
proclaim that as a nation, we're going to rise again. And the whole declaration was, we're going to do it ourselves. We're Americans. We're strong. We can do it. I wonder if God in heaven, I wonder how he felt about that. I wonder if it wouldn't have been better if he'd have come before the nation and said, folks, let's come before a holy God. Let's seek his face. Let's repent of our sins as a nation for slaughtering thousands of babies in the womb. Let's come before our God and repent of our sin of rejecting him I wonder what it ha might have happened God is calling us to repentance God uses sometimes bad things to accomplish his purpose like Romans 8 28 says he works all things together he doesn't say all things are good, not by any stretch. But he says all things have a good purpose and it, it helps conform us to his image. Well, Spurgeon was right. People love God everywhere except on his throne. Psalm 103.19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules Overall. So there's a declaration of glory. There's a defense of his greatness. Number three, there's a denunciation of God's foes. Notice what he says here. He says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak, eyes, but do not see, ears, but do not hear, noses do not smell, hands do not feel, feet do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. And those who make them become like them. Wow. And notice what he says. Their, their mouths, well, first of all, notice they're making their gods in the image of themselves. In other words, they are deifying themselves. Humanism on steroids. I'm going to worship something like me. God's purpose is that God might create us into his image, but instead we've tried to create God into our image. We've tried to make him like us. And so they have mouths that cannot speak. There's no word of encouragement or, or, or good news of hope from them. They have eyes that cannot see. They can't see your needs or your problems. It goes unnoticed by those idols. They have ears, but you can't, they can't hear your prayers. Your prayers go unheard heard and unanswered. They have noses, but they can't smell. There's no life. They have hands, but they can't feel. They're insensitive to you and unable to do anything for you. They have feet, but they, are, they cannot walk. They're weak. They're powerless. They can't even clear their throat. What a picture of weakness. And see, here's the thing. These gods are no gods. They're really nothing 
The word for idol really is, is, means nothing. Now, demons in the Old Testament used idols to seek to control and direct peoples, but the idol itself is nothing. Satan would use it. But there are, there's not in heaven a pantheon of different gods with one supreme God. In heaven there's one God, one true God, and only one. That's the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And you shall worship the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and all your mind. In Isaiah 44, he describes what it's like to, to have these idols. I, I, we don't have time uh, to read all that, but, but when you have time, look, look at Isaiah 44, 9 through 21. Just make you a note to read that. Uh, uh, let me just read a little bit of it. Verse 12, the ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree and lets it grow strong among the trees. He plants a cedar and rain nourishes it. Then it, fuel, then it becomes fuel for man. And notice what he says. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread with it and also makes a god and worships it. Wow. Takes part of it, bakes his bread. Part of it, he worships it. I've gotten into, I guess, hundreds of taxis in India. Every one of them have their gods everywhere. But there are really no gods. It's a land of more than a million gods, but it's really a land of no gods because they're not worshiping the true and living God. One man said, what is worse than bowing down before a carved statue? It is for someone to believe that there is one true living God in heaven and to suppose that he cannot do whatever he pleases. He's not the God of human reason. He's the God of divine revelation. Richard Foster wrote a book. He's a Quaker. I don't know if you've ever read anything about Richard Foster, but he's a, a Quaker. And he writes in sort of a mystical vein, but he's written a book in which he catalogs three American gods. And the whole book say of three American gods. You know what they are? Money, sex, and power. And that's the title of the book. Money, sex, and power. That's the trinity of many Americans. Well, uh, let's go to number four. We see a declaration of God's glory, a defense of His greatness, a denunciation of His foes. Number four, a dependency upon God's grace. Uh, what I want you to see here, that God is offering here a kind, loving invitation. 
God is sovereign. He can do whatever he pleases. But notice how he deals with his people. He doesn't deal with them arbitrarily. He doesn't deal with them like some iron-fisted deity in the sky that doesn't care. That is a caricature of our sovereign God. God is not that way. He's a kind, loving Father. And notice what it says. Notice what it says. It says, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. So now here's the cause. The cause of God's, uh, the cause for God's blessing is trust. You notice three times in those verses, you see, no, no, four, is it three or four? Three times. He uses the word trust. Trust. Now, the word trust means to attach oneself to or to cling to. It means to have confidence, to rely upon in difficult times. And God repeats himself three times. Once is enough, but like E.F. Hutton, if God speaks, we should pay attention. Amen? And when God says something three times, he says, trust, trust, trust. Rose and I have adopted as our life verse, actually I first adopted this uh, as an individual and then we kind of adopted it as our life verse, Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. When I was stationed on the Isle of Okinawa, the navigators challenged me to select a life verse and I selected this one. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. How many of you know what that one? You know that one? What does it say? Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not to thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he will direct thy paths. So God is calling us tonight to put our trust confidently in him. God is calling us. That's the cause, trust. Now if that's the cause, what is the effect? If we do trust him, what is the effect? Well, that's verses 12 through 15. He says, the Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord. Now, you and I are included in that last group. We're God-fearers. We are, are Gentiles, but we're God-fearers. We believe in the one true God. In the New Testament, those people are called God-fearers. And so here's the, the effect is that when we trust, God blesses. When we trust, God blesses. You, you'll notice that word bless is found four times. Bless, 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 bless. Right, let me ask you something. When you ask God to bless somebody, what are you asking God to do? Flesh that out. What does that look like? I, one of the things that helped me kind of flesh this out is when I was preaching on the loaves and the fishes. And it, it says that the little boy brought his lunch to Jesus. 
the loaves and fishes. And it says concerning Jesus that he blessed it. Remember? What does that mean? Well, here's, here's my conclusion. So you can take this and a dollar and a half and buy yourself a cup of coffee. Here's my conclusion. It means that he put something in it that wasn't there when he got it. That make sense to you? When Jesus blessed the loaves and fishes, it means he put something in those loaves and fishes that wasn't there when he got it. In other words, he component to what was there. And he used those loaves and fishes to, he broke it, he blessed it, and he used it. Now, when the scripture says that God blesses us, I think part of the understanding of that is that God does something for us and in us that wasn't there before he blessed us, right? So when we're praying for God to bless somebody, we're praying for God to invade them, for God to, to, to work in their lives in a way that only God can do. And, and so the Lord says, if, if you trust me, then I'm going to work in your life. I'm going to begin to work out my purpose in your life. And it all hinges on the word trust. Trust. Remember that old song? Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy with Jesus but to trust and obey. Okay, now we come to the last point. Here we are. We're just about finished. I got three more minutes. Let's finish it up. The doxology of God's supremacy. That's found in the last three verses, 16, 17, and 18. He says, the heavens, now notice that's plural. Heavens. That means the highest heavens. You, you, you know, Paul said, I was caught up into the third heaven. There's the, the, the atmospheric heaven we breathe. There's the stellar heaven we see, the stars and moon. And then there's the, the abode of God. That's the third heaven. Well, he says, the heavens are the Lord's heavens. I, Isaiah said in Isaiah 6, when he went into the worship service, he said, I saw the Lord, what church? High and lifted up. Right. I saw the Lord high. So this is a doxology. He said, the, the heavens are the Lord's. But notice this, church. But the earth he has given to the children of men. Wow. In other words, God has given to us as a stewardship this earth. He, he, he did to Adam. He, he gave Adam that responsibility. He, uh, listen to what 2 Timothy 4 says. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected. It is to be received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. In other words, God gives us this earth to enjoy. He gave us mountains and beaches and sunsets, and sunrises, and Grand Canyons, and golf courses. <laughs> Amen? Amen. And, and he says, I give you that to enjoy. 
It's just a little preview of heaven. And so he says there's a, a doxology. These gifts are always to bring glory to him as we reflect back his creation. We reflect back his glory. Well, the last verses, notice what he says in that very last verse, and I'm through. He says, uh, he says, the dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. What, what does he mean by that? He's saying, while we are alive, we're to praise God. We're to enjoy all that God has given us. We're to praise him because the dead. Now, this is not the full orb light of the New Testament on immortality. It is the vague treatment of life after death that we find throughout the Old Testament. There's not a full orb, full thing uh, on life after death. But even here, we have the sense that, that uh, we need to take advantage of the moment, the time. We need to enjoy the journey. Amen? Praise God as we can, for the dead cannot praise the Lord. I have a sermon I preach, and I'll, I'll, if, if the Lord gives me the freedom, I'll probably preach it here, called Come Before Winter. And it's what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. He said, Timothy, I need you to come. The time of my departure is at hand. They're about to execute me, and I don't want to die alone. He says, Timothy, come before winter. And the implication is if you don't come before winter, it'll be too late. I'll already be dead. The Lord is saying here, if you're ever going to praise him, praise him now. Amen? Amen. Take advantage of right now. Let's just bow our heads for a moment. You know, this would be a good time, would it not? Just to lift up praise to him. The world looks at us and says, where is your God? You know what our response is? Our God is in heaven. He's still on his throne. He is still on his throne. Just give him praise right now. Just in your heart, in a, in a prayer, just lift that praise up. Say, Lord, we believe in you. You know, the scripture says that he blesses those that trust him. You know, sometimes we need to pray the prayer of the man in the New Testament said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. God, strengthen my faith. Strengthen my trust. Lord, I want to live in the light of your blessings. I want you to put something in me that wasn't there when you got me, Lord. I want you to fill me with your spirit. I want you, Lord, to give me your grace and your strength. I want to have the mind of Christ. I, I want to think as you think. I want to, to live out my faith, Lord in a way that honors and pleases you.